And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. It remains the international window, which means Ryan Bailey continues to not be on the episode. But joining me today, making his international return, is Mr. Graham Ruffin. Hello, Graham. You weren't here Monday. You're back on the Tuesday. I am, indeed. I felt like I, I, I couldn't miss out on an opportunity to talk about how good Scotland are yep. all of a sudden. I, um, I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. We're playing England tonight. I'm looking forward to an evening of shouting, ab- shouting abuse at English people, which I know I do on this podcast anyway, but Ryan and I aren't usually in the same place. And this time, Jordan Henderson will be right there in front of me. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know what? You put Scotland, Graham did the running order for today. You put Scotland fourth in the order. I'm making an executive decision to move that to the top right now. Uh, Scotland, top of their group for Euro qualifying. You're playing England today. With the way they started in qualifying, if you lose, say, 2-0 to England, how sad are you now, Graham? Does that completely negate all of that's happened in qualifying? Are you going to be bummed or are you no. going to be okay with it? I'll definitely be uh, be bummed about the result. But the weird thing about tonight's game is Norway and Georgia are playing at the same time as Scotland and England tonight. And if they draw at the same time as Scotland play in England, we officially qualify. We punch Ooh. a ticket as the first country, which is just unbelievable, other than Germany, of course, as hosts, the first country to qualify for Euro 2024. <laughs> so the weird scenario is if Scotland lose to England tonight, but at full time, it's a draw between Norway and, and Georgia... That will be one weird atmosphere in Hamden. It will be a party and England players will be very, very confused by what is going on. Uh, and you are correct that Germany as hosts have qualified. And yet at the same time, I would say I'm not sure Germany have fully punched their ticket to being at the Euros. <laughs> uh, we'll talk more about them shortly. But Graham, like this has to be, is this the most exciting time uh, to be a Scotland fan that you can remember with oh, the yeah. way they started and with the talent they have? Yeah. Absolutely. This is completely unprecedented for Scotland. I This might be foolish and we're recording this before the game, but I am like confident going into a game against England. I mean, it, it should be a good game. It's certainly a, a good opportunity for England to test themselves against elite level opposition. And uh, in, in, in Scotland, uh, yeah, having a 100% qualification record isn't for everyone, England, uh, drawing dropping points against Ukraine. But yeah, Scotland very very good at the moment it's a weird unsettling time to be a scotland fan because as i say it's un- unprecedented times we've won five out of five euro qualifiers we're one of only three teams along with france and portugal to have a perfect record we've beaten spain we've beaten uh, erling Haaland and norway in norway we went to cyprus last week and just like swept them aside we were three nil up after 30 minutes and then just managed the rest of the match we don't do that. That is not Scotland. Like, even games we are expected to win, we have the quality yep. to win. We either win with, like, a even the last qualification campaign, which was a very good campaign. I think we won eight out of ten games. We go to the Faroe Islands and Lyndon Dyke scores an 89th minute winner to win 1-0. That isn't happening at, at the moment. And 
even going back to that qualification campaign for the World Cup, we've now won 11 group qualifiers in a row. We've won nation, we won our Nations League group. We're up to League A for next time. So yeah, I look forward to it all crashing down against England in this friendly match tonight. But uh, this is something substantial that even if we do lose tonight, I feel like it's going to continue for a little while longer, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, a couple more questions, specifically about this fixture. We're going to do a 101 on uh, the historical footballing relations between Scotland and England. Would this be like the equivalent of USA-Mexico, where even if it's a friendly, where you're not yeah. really supposed to care about the result because it's Scotland-England, you care about the result? Yeah, certainly from a, a Scottish point of view, the only the only oh, difference is do I would yourself. say don't do that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the only difference is I think England. We are certainly rivals for England. There is a rivalry yeah. that rivalry that they feel as well. But I think they would maybe consider like Germany or or um, maybe Argentina and France to be fiercer rivals than 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 Scotland. I think of it like you know how there's that little um, rivalry triangle Taylor that involves Liverpool, Manchester United, and Leeds, mm-hmm. and Leeds consider Manchester United to be like their biggest rivals and my United would probably look to Liverpool instead we're essentially leads in that in that rivalry so but yes it will be a in in terms of Scotland's team I am anticipating a full strength 11 for the game I I don't know whether whether Southgate will do that with England he is under a bit of pressure at the moment so maybe he feels like he needs a bit of a result as 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 well but it it should genuinely be a an entertaining game and there are times in the past where Scotland have made good runs in qualifying. I think I would put Ireland in this category of sometimes they qualify, sometimes they don't. When they do qualify, it's exciting, but there's also a feeling of like they ground out results to your point. It's scoring a late winner against the Faroe Islands and the like. With this team, do you feel like it is more, this is a talented team that is well-built and could do things at the Euros? Do you feel like it's more so this is a team poised to do something at the Euros more than it is a team that is happy to be at the Euros? Yeah. That that's the target because of course we qualified for the last Euros. That was our first tournament for uh, twenty three years. That was the achievement was getting to the tournament. Now I don't think we embarrassed ourselves. We weren't humiliated at the tournament, but you could quite clearly see that we lacked um, experience. I even think we lacked quality in that in that group. We only got one point from three games. And since then, it's been about building for the next tournament. I I still think we were very unfortunate to not qualify for the World Cup. As I say, eight wins from 10 games normally gets you to a a World Cup. Um, We didn't get there. We lost in the playoff. Now this team really can play a number of different ways. We are we are good defensively. We can sit deep in bunker and play in the counter. There are other games where we have players like Billy Gilmore and Callum McGregor and John McGinn to control games like we did against Cyprus. We are lacking a world-class center forward but to be honest so are most countries in international soccer and Che Adams is just very good at facilitating others like like um, John McGinn and Scott McTominay who I think embodies a lot of what makes this Scotland team special at the moment he is used in a very different way to how he is used at at club level where my United use him as a midfield anchor as a number six I have Bang the strum for a long time. Scott McTominay is not a number six, and Steve Clark seems to be one of the few people who recognises this. He has really unlocked him in an attacking sense, where he has the freedom to get forward, to get into the box, and he scored six goals in five games. Taylor, do you know who has scored more goals in European qualification than Scott McTominay in this cycle? Do you know who that who that who that would be? Is it nobody? nobody. That's who. Nobody <laughs> scored more goals than Scott McTominay in this in this qualification cycle. He is absolutely superb. <laughs> In that role, and and looking at his club future, 
there was a lot of speculation about him in the, in the summer. I, I now actively want him to, don't take this personally, but I, I now yeah. actively want him to leave Manchester United because yeah. Ten Hag just doesn't really understand him. Solskjaer didn't really seem to understand him. Mourinho didn't, even though Mourinho brought him into the team, Mourinho seemed to think he was a number six as well. And if if, if he, he can go to West Ham or Newcastle and, and David Moyes or Eddie Howe gets him a bit more, then go there because I honestly think he's 26 now. These are pretty precious years for Scott McTominay now. At club level, fans are just not seeing what he is capable of and and Scotland are at the moment. Yeah. Graham, silly question alert, uh, silly question incoming. Is, is it the way he looks? Is it that he's sort of like, ah, he sort of looks like Darren Fletcher. He looks like Michael Kerr. Mm, he's a maybe, holding yeah. midfielder. Like, wh- why do you think that is? Because I agree that that seems to be where he has been like identified. You are a number six. You are a holding midfielder. But I think you're absolutely right. You watch him play for Scotland, and I think it brings many of his other talents uh, to the forefront. I think he suffers from a bit of Fellaini syndrome, where whereby he, because he is tall, people yep. think he is a defensive-minded player, and and actually he's not at all. Solskjaer used him a couple times in, a, in an attacking position. I remember there was a, a Manchester derby that he was very good in for Manchester United, and I think he was allowed to get forward a bit more then but yeah I call it Fellaini syndrome and if you just push him up the pitch a little bit I'm not saying he's a number 10 he's not a striker although McTominay the interesting thing about McTominay is he was a striker as a youth player like as a 16 17 year old he was a center forward so maybe that's where those finishing instincts come from but together with McGinn just allow them to crash the box to get on the end of crosses and it kind of unlocks a different part of their game and how many fullbacks will Scotland be playing in this game Roughly about seven out of 11, I think, <laughs> will be fullbacks. Yeah, as I've said before, it's a scientific experiment at this point. Uh, since, since we're on this one, let's just make this one part one of this episode. So we've talked a bit about Scotland. Let's spend some time on England for a moment, where it, it feels like we, we do this a lot with England in qualifying. It's either they breeze through qualifying and the hype is there, or they mostly breeze through qualifying and then the think pieces are written about how is this team evolving in the right way? Do they need the next step? Can they take the next step? And it seems like we are in the latter category at this stage with this team under Southgate. Yeah, the, the discussion around Southgate and this England team and all the things you just mentioned there, Taylor, it just never goes away. It's, nope. the, it's constantly there. And every so often there is, a, there is a real pinch point. And we've had one in this international window with England dropping points to Ukraine. Now, I don't think any England fan is panicked by what's happening with England right now. That was the first time they dropped points. They've got 13 out of 15 points. They will comfortably qualify for the Euros, particularly with England, with Italy dropping points to North Macedonia on on, on the same night. It's more a discussion about whether Southgate is getting the most out of this England team, this group of players that they've got. And when Southgate first comes into the England job, I think he does a very good job of galvanizing that team making the locker room a healthy environment which for England for a long time hadn't been the case and that in itself was enough to improve England and improve their results but if you look at the squad that he inherited back in whenever it was 2017 2018 and then look at the squad that he has now there has been a vast improvement a vast uptick in the quality and the talent that England have within that squad I mean I'm looking at international teams around the world right now and Maybe France are the only team right now with more depth in every position than England. And so the discussion is now about whether Southgate is maximising that talent, whether England can be, and this this is always the discussion point around Southgate, who is, by trade, a conservative-minded manager. Could England afford to be just a little bit more attack-minded? Could he get more out of players like Phil Foden or James Madison? James Madison, who started against Ukraine, but started on the left wing 
and just wasn't able to really influence the game at all. And from my point of view, I can understand it because he starts a, a central midfield unit of Declan Rice, Jude Bellingham and Jordan Henderson. For a, a game against Ukraine, all due respect to Ukraine, England have the talent advantage there. They should be able to control games to dominate that match. And you just wonder, could he push Madison into the central midfield unit, get him in between the lines like he does for Tottenham, give him a bit of a free roll, take Jordan Henderson out of that midfield so you've got a double pivot of Bellingham and Declan Rice. And then not only does that allow you to get Madison or Foden into their preferred position, but you can bring in someone like Marcus Rashford on the left side. You can bring in someone like Jack Grealish. So it's it's replacing a defensive-minded anchor, which is what I think Henderson is at this point in his career, for another attack-minded player. And it's a symptom of when England come up against teams that are either higher higher caliber than themselves or on their level, they just seem, with Southgate as manager, they just seem unable to impose themselves on matches. And that feels like the final step for them. And I think a lot of people myself included, I have to admit, are unsure whether Southgate will ever be able to do that. All right, so here's my next question then. If he tried, if Southgate, not like publicly recognized, but but just decided, you know what, I do want to have more attacking opportunities. I want to make a more attacking team. I want to build towards that. That, to me, would require experimentation, which he has done, don't get me wrong, but it would require sort of rolling the dice. And oftentimes what that leads to is, is bad results. So let's say he did try to go with a more attacking approach to get more creativity on the ball. And it works in spurts against Scotland, but they still end up losing 2-0 England. Like, I, my assumption is that the press aren't going to be like, hey, Southgate's trying to evolve this team. Let's <laughs> see what happens. It feels like it's going to be like, idiot Southgate can't get this team to score, and now we're conceding? Like, it, it feels like he is in a very thankless position, which he's been in for some long while, so maybe he's used to it. But it doesn't seem like he can really even afford to try that because he's mm. going to be immediately scrutinized for even trying it and then criticized simultaneously for not trying it. It feels like you have past experience of the English media and how they treat <laughs> England managers. Because yes, that is absolutely what would happen. And this is where maybe Southgate bemoans the removal of friendlies from. I know, I know mm-hmm. they're playing a friendly tonight against Scotland, but that is that is unusual. Scotland and England and most European nations at this point don't play many friendlies at all because they've got qualifiers, they've got nation league, Nations League games, and then you've got major tournaments. And the idea is that the Nations League has injected a bit more competitiveness to those games. And I think it has succeeded in that regard. Um, but it does mean there is less time for experimentation um and i do wonder if southgate bemoans yeah. that i i, I kind of wonder if um and this is this is purely my just my impression i'm not convinced that southgate's heart is fully in it anymore after the world cup in qatar apparently he needed to be talked into staying i don't know if you remember this after england lose that quarterfinal to france he says something to the effect of yeah i'll need to consider whether i'm staying on as manager despite the fact he was under contract until uh, 2024 and um yeah it honestly just feels like maybe he's been worn down a little bit by the constant discussion around him because besides a kind of two-year period between 2018 and uh and 2020 this this cycle of discussion just keeps coming back around with with south with southgate um and to the point where there's reports that he will step down after the euros and the um the FA apparently want Pep Guardiola to be their manager after that tournament, um, which, you know, good luck trying to get Pep out of Manchester City. I, I do think Pep will one day move into an international management, but 
not in 2024. And I think if he does leave City, it'll probably be for Brazil when that job comes up. He has a number of times said that he would like to coach uh, Brazil. And that's, that's maybe the thing that keeps Southgate in, in the job. I think broadly he has done a good job as England manager. I think they could probably Im- improve on Southgate but only if the right candidate is out there. And I'm not sure who the right candidate is because Graham Potter is top of a lot of lists when you read the, the betting odds. But if Southgate is being moved on because he can't spark England's attack, if that's the reason you get rid of Southgate, is Graham Potter really the right man for that job? I still maintain that Graham Potter is a good manager, but the criticism of him even at Brighton when he was doing well at Brighton was that his teams didn't score a lot of goals and he didn't take a lot of risks in an attacking sense. If it's not Graham Potter, it's not Pep, then it's like Frank Lampard or Jose Mourinho. I think Big Mourinho would take Sam. the England job. Big, Big Sam. Sam. Big <laughs> yeah, give Sam. him another shot. He deserves it. <laughs> I mean, He's... I would love Big Sam as England manager again, but uh, yeah. not because he would make England good. <laughs> well, so, okay, so then what are your final question or a couple questions? What are your expectations for this game? Do you expect Scotland to be more the dominant team than they've been in the past? Do you feel like this could be a backs against the wall performance for England? What are you sort of, if you had to predict how this game plays out, what are you thinking? I think Scotland will have periods of good possession. I'm not going to say it'll be a backs to the wall job for England because the quality of players that they have, they will have opportunities. They'll probably score at least one goal. Um, Let me rephrase that. I think I said that poorly. What I mean is more of a, like, is this a... We're under we're under scrutiny a little bit. There's debate about uh, is our manager into it? Could this be a like we're gonna come out and put Scotland to the sword to show that like we're still England? Is I guess what I mean by backs against the wall. Um, I'm I'm really not sure from the England point of view. To be honest, from the Scotland point of view, we're looking at this as an opportunity to like really inflict damage mm-hmm. on England. Like if we beat England tonight, the discussion around Southgate and the uncertainty. And the self-doubt around this England team is going to be so delicious. <laughs> um, and we can inflict it. Like, we can be the ones to, to inflict it. So, yeah, for, from our point of view, I think we're, we're, Scotland are really going to go for it. It'll be a full-strength team. Maybe, like, Lyndon Dykes comes in for Che Adams or something like that. From England's point of view, um, I think they'll be quite reactive. I mean, I, I, I think they will look to play in transition and on the break in, against Scotland at times. Yes, they will have possession periods too. Um, but I back Scotland's midfield of Billy Gilmore and John McGinn and Callum McGregor to kind of have quite a bit of the ball, particularly Billy Gilmore, who's in good form at, at the moment. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. Obviously, there's a very good chance that England pull out a result here. They've got the talent and the quality to do that. I'll be disappointed if that happens. But this feels like a good opportunity for Scotland. I guess you can't really sell newspapers on like, eh, England is doing fine. It's either they're great or they're terrible. <laughs> but again, it, it's so funny to see how it's like England in crisis, despite being top of their group by six points, albeit having played one more game than Ukraine. <laughs> but they've beaten Italy. Uh, they've got what? Uh, Eng- Italy at home, Malta at home, North Macedonia away. England will qualify comfortably. It's just how convincing or maybe not convincing they look that yeah. I think has the, the concerns there. One of the things that was really refreshing about Southgate's England at the start was that it felt different from the kind of mid-2000s England culture and team. And I feel like with every match and certainly every tournament that passes, they're getting closer to that kind of discourse where England in the mid-2000s would comfortably qualify for every single tournament. They'd be They'd be like in the top five in terms of favourites. They would easily make the, the knockout rounds. They'd make the quarterfinals. But... 
people were really unhappy that with the talent that England had at that time, they weren't able to take the next step. And that feels like where England are back at. Like history is repeating them itself for them. Yeah, uh, there's a good piece on this in The Athletic. Uh, the last thing I'll say, uh, here's a good quote for you. The dynamics of the group are changing and Southgate may have to adapt and evolve with them rather than just managing them in what has clearly been a very competent way when they were younger and less experienced. So it's basically, as you said, veterans who are now playing for higher and higher profile clubs and doing well, then you need the kind of results of the national team to reflect those performances. And maybe, just maybe, they aren't quite yet. But a 4-0 win over Scotland will do that, and a 4-0 loss to Scotland will do the opposite of that. Graham, either way, I'm guessing uh, that – I guess we won't hear from you tomorrow. It's going to be myself and David Goss breaking down the U.S. game, uh, which I think is good because even though we're yes, recording in well. the afternoon your time, I'm guessing <laughs> you'll have a headache either way. Yeah, yeah, quite right. quite possibly. That is that is the Scottish way. I mean, historically, we lose so often that you can't really reserve the beer for the wins. Otherwise, you'd be teetotal. So. All right. Uh, that is Scotland and England. We're going to take a break and we'll come back to talk a lot about Germany. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Uh, the big question, if not the big thing episode this week, has been, what is going on with Germany? Who are the hosts of the Euros so they don't have to go through qualifying? Which is probably very good for them because things are not great with the German national team who this week parted ways with Hansi Flick, the oft-repeated stat is that he is the first uh, manager of the German national team to be sacked by the DFB. Other Which managers, is wild. Like, yeah. That is so wild. And just as that in itself just illustrates how good Germany have been for so long. It's unfair. Yes, yes it absolutely is. And other managers have walked away when the writing yeah. was on the wall, but this is the first time a sacking has taken place. He is the second worst points per game total of any manager in German history, managing a team that by all accounts is missing... Unity, a team ethos, uh, much ink has been spilled uh, comparing them to the German basketball team uh, that just won. Uh, and so I think by contrast, it seems like a team that isn't really coming together, hasn't really gelled and hasn't really similar to England, maybe evolved to that next level, which is what a lot of people thought would happen, or at least I did under Hansi Flick. I think maybe now looking back from a position of ignorance, I felt like this is a guy who has lots of uh, experience as an assistant at national team level. He goes to Bayern yeah. and does well. It seemed like it was a slam dunk appointment, and now it seems like it is the opposite of that. Yeah, I I, I share that surprise, Taylor, that it didn't work out for, for Flick as, as manager. Um, so first thing we should mention is this had been coming for Hansi Flick, so they lose 4-1 to Germany on... That's either Japan. Thursday or Friday. Japan, yeah. uh, Japan, excuse me. Yeah, not Germany. That would have been uh, even more notable. <laughs> I mean, if they lost by all accounts, themselves. <laughs> they did sort of also lose to themselves that day. So I think it works both <laughs> ways. Yeah, so they, they lose 4-1 at home in a friendly to Japan. Um, but Flick is not 
sacked on the basis of that result. That was very much the, the, the final straw. They generally got knocked out of the group stage of the World Cup. Their form since then has, has been dreadful as well. And yes, it has only been friendlies, but as you mentioned, Taylor, Germany don't have qualification for Euro 2024 as host. So that's all they've got to go on and that's all they will have to go on until the tournament starts next summer. And they've either drawn or lost to this is their game since the World Cup, Belgium, Ukraine, Poland, Colombia, and now Japan. And it's their worst run of results since 1985. And watching that game against Japan, it really did feel like the end of a cycle. It's been a short cycle for Hansi Flick, I might say, but you could see in the performance that I I don't think those players were bought into Flick anymore. And as I say, it is surprising that it didn't work out for him because he was a treble winner for Bayern. He coached loads of the players he would then coach for Germany. So you would you would think there would be some sort of carryover there. He had international experience as Yogi Lowe's assistant. But Germany, and this isn't just down to Hansi Flick, this goes back to when Yogi Lowe was in charge as well. They have really mismanaged their generational transition. And it's not even a recent thing. We We all have this idea about Germany being perennial contenders and what's the old Gary Lineker quote like football is a game where you play like 22 men kick a ball around for 90 minutes and in the end Germany win that's the idea that we have about Germany as a, as a national team but if we're looking at the snapshot of the last like three to four years or even longer than that actually five to six years that hasn't really been true in that time frame they've gone out of the group stage at the last two mm-hmm. world cups they've also gone out of the last euros in the, in the round of 16 where they lost to England so there is a sense of panic in Germany that the Euros are just around the corner. This felt like the last opportunity for them to make a change because the Euros are nine months away. If you don't make a change now, the Euros are too close for you to enact any kind of real change. So the Euros are on home home soil nine months away and there has been no sign that things are turning around for this team. So it's not surprising that they have made it. It's, it's surprising that Flick didn't work out, but given how 2023 has gone for this team, not surprising to see the DFB pull the trigger on him. No, I, I don't think it is. And then I think if you look back at sort of his coaching resume, suddenly when it goes poorly, I think the reasons for that are are evident because he is an assistant starting in 2006 under Yogi Lowe, but Yogi Lowe, as we all know, was an assistant to Jurgen Klinsmann when he was in charge of the national team. And so... To my understanding, there is a feeling that it, it was Klinsman and his assistant with Lowe. Then it was Lowe with his assistant being Hansi Flick. And then Flick comes in and is now the manager. And there's not a ton of change there. There is a lot of overlap and there is, therefore, a lot of familiarity. And I heard the fellows on the Gagan Pressing podcast talking about this a little bit. They did a great episode on Lowe, uh, excuse me, Flick being sacked. But basically that like, if you're Mark andre Testegen and you keep waiting for your opportunity, but every manager who gets appointed has an existing relationship with Manuel Neuer, they're going to keep playing Manuel Neuer. They're going to keep playing players that they have familiarity with, that they know how to coach, that they know how to get results out of. But with Hansi Flick, by all accounts, it sounds like he's not a very demonstrative passive-aggressive and passive seem to be the words that get thrown around a lot with his coaching style. And so it doesn't feel like the players were bought in but it also feels like he was reliant on players with whom he had existing connections. So then when those players weren't buying in, it becomes even more problematic because then you're not bringing through younger players, which is what a newly appointed manager should be doing. They should be shaking it up. They should be trying different things. And it just feels like it was a sort of, 
damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Flick, because even when he does bring in new players, a, a much cited statistic is that I, I don't believe he ever played the same fullback pairing from one game to the next when he was in charge, or at the very least recently has not. Sometimes it's wingbacks, sometimes it's fullbacks, but even there you don't get a ton of overlap in who starts. So it was trying to figure things out. Fullback is an issue for Germany. Striker is an issue for Germany. Lots of different shapes and looks there and different personnel thrown in. But none of it really sticking, none of it feeling like, okay, he is evolving this team. He is bringing through young players, but he's also not getting the best out of the players that he should be getting the best out of. So nothing really feels to be working. Yeah, I think a lot of German fans feel that both Flick and and Yogi Lowe towards the end of his his time as manager, they just didn't do enough to find solutions to problems. So there is this big overarching discussion around German football right now, and there's concern over the quality of young players coming through, particularly when you you compare it to England and France, which Germany do a lot. Those are the the countries that they see as their peers, not only as peers, but but countries that they should be leading and be ahead of in in the pecking order. And when you look at the, the young players coming through at at, at the big clubs in Europe it doesn't feel like there is a lot of German talent but even still there's a there's a good number of players who I found uh, a couple of blogs that named players who were never were never really given an opportunity under Hansi Flick when they they could have been a feasible solution to a problem so one of the issues that that Germany have is they don't have a, a natural midfield anchor when you have Rani Kadira who has been one of the star players for Union Berlin thriving in that role in the Bundesliga and he's never been called up by Hansi Flick to, to the national team you have um I, I'm, I'm you talking about the gig impressing pod, podcast Taylor I'm sure I've, I've seen uh, Manuel Vaith um, tweeting about this but Pascal Gross has been one of the most productive German players in, in terms of assists mm-hmm. and, and attacking output in the big European uh, big five European leagues for something like four seasons he makes his debut in this in this Japan game for Germany he's 32 like, why is he making his debut at 32 and not three years before yeah. now when he's 29? You get a little bit more out of him. So I think the the conversation is, is, is twofold. There's two sides of the conversation where, yes, maybe Germany... I don't think anyone is arguing that Rani Kadira is up to the standard of uh, Declan Rice or Pascal Gross is up to the standard of, uh, you know, an Antoine Griezmann or, or, or whatever. But um, Flick and Lowe didn't do enough to yeah. find solutions to solve problems they just relied on as you mentioned with relationships they just relied on past relationships with players they already knew yeah and then i i think when you look at the issue with that in mind but with, with, with the broader context in mind it basically becomes that i think there's not any one clear problem for germany there are lots of little problems which maybe becomes systemic or requires overarching overhaul but even looking at the dfb itself for a moment uh I have heard the argument that like they are too controlling. They want too much control over which players are brought in, that if there is an attempt to change up the squad, to not bring in Kimmich or Muller or someone like that, that there is pushback and no, these guys are institutions, they must be played. But then I've also heard that there is a sort of void in leadership and it's uh, Bernd Johannes Neuendorf is the president. He's not a footballer. He is a from a political background. So by all accounts, it's Hans uh, Joachim Watzke is the vice chairman. Uh, from Dortmund, he is kind of the most important football man, quote unquote, uh, and is, I think, the one leading the group, like uh, searching for the next hire. Rudy Voller has, uh, is the technical director. He's taken over as caretaker manager for now. But it just seems like it's a situation of you have to call in, if you're the German national team coach, you have to call in those names that everybody knows, but you also have to 
evolve the squad and get them doing new and exciting things. And, and I don't, but there's no one there to really make that happen. But there are people there to sort of criticize you for not making it happen. And it's where it, it feels like another position. I think the takeaway from this episode is just that, like, unless you're Steve Clark, being a national team manager is is a pretty thankless position. We talked about it with England. We talk about it all the time with Berhalter, with Mexico, with whomever else. But in this case, with Germany, anyone who comes in, I think, is going to be have a lot of pressure and also have a short leash. It doesn't feel to me like Nagelsmann is the one who I think is is the the odds-on favorite to get the gig. I think Bayern would have to agree to it because they still technically employ him. So I saw just before we started re- recording, mm-hmm. Bild were reporting that he's been released by Bayern Munich, there which could be the first step yeah. of him becoming the, the replacement. But I think about why it doesn't go well for him at Bayern, and it's sort of he doesn't really convince the board that his way is the right way, and at the same time, he does convince them that he is like stubborn in his approach and doesn't really want to listen to feedback, doesn't really want to like do things outside of what he is comfortable with. Uh, and 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 then I think the speculation becomes, or a lot of the messaging becomes, like he was kind of overawed by the position. He wasn't quite ready for that jump, or wasn't quite ready to handle the pressures of Bayern Munich. It, it doesn't feel like that's going to be a different scenario uh, managing the German national team. And and we've talked before about how with with international gigs, it's much harder to get your team playing the style you want if you has a, have a very technical instruction oriented style to get a national team playing that, and to get a national team like Germany playing that even harder. I'm not sure he is the the answer. I think somebody like maybe like Urs Fischer from Union Berlin. I don't know if he would have taken the gig uh, because I also don't think it's the highest paying job right now. They have other financial commitments, the German FA. Uh, so he feels like one who maybe finds a way to get a team that shouldn't be able to punch as much above its weight as it does to continuously do that. Whereas Nagelsmann, I just think there are concerns that maybe he will overcome and he will certainly have to overcome if he wants to be successful. But I think... There's a lot of up-and-coming managers who the first thing they're going to have to do is sort of stand up for themselves and drop some big names, and that means they're going to get attacked by German media and foreign media, and they have to kind of be able to handle that and get the results quickly enough that we forget that those players were dropped or sort of moved on. And and right now, I'm not sure who the manager is who can thread that needle, and it is a mm-hmm. very, very small needle that has to be threaded. Yeah. So so first of all, I very much enjoy that Rudy Voller is in charge yeah. as interim head coach, like it's the early 2000s again. I don't know why that feels so weird. It's like it's like if Kevin Keegan was yep. interim England manager That's why. again. It just feels like, you know, we've moved into another age of, of football. It feels like Rudy Voller, as good as he was as a player and a manager, we, we've moved past that generation. So the fact that he is now the interim head coach of, uh, on paper, one of the best national teams in the world is, is, is funny to me. I um, With regards to Nagelsmann Taylor, he has been really careful not to jump back into mm-hmm. management too quickly he rejected Chelsea and by all accounts they offered him the job before Pochettino Tottenham offered him the job before Postacoglu PSG apparently offered him the job before Luis Enrique so this this is a manager who is in demand even after leaving Bayern Munich he will get an elite level coaching job soon enough even if he doesn't take the Germany job and I am just not totally convinced that his kind of hands-on approach will work that well in in international soccer for the same reason that as good a manager as Pep Guardiola is, arguably the the best manager of all time, certainly the best of his generation, 
I'm not co- totally convinced that he will be that great an international soccer yeah. manager. Now, Nagelsmann's nowhere near the level of Guardiola, but in terms of his profile, the fact that you get a lot of managers who are managers and then they have like a first team coach who will handle a lot of the tactical stuff and the training drills. My impression of Nagelsmann is he is very much a coach and coaches tend to lend themselves towards club soccer because you have more time on the training pitch. International soccer is difficult for coaches. And so I'm not sure that's a... That is that is a a, a great um, a great fit for Nagelsmann or for Germany. Oliver Glasner is an interesting one. He's his name is is also on shortlists that I have uh, I have seen. He is still out of work after leaving Frankfurt last season. He won the Europa League there. Um, he kind of left Frankfurt on his own terms as well. It felt like he needed a new challenge. He didn't get sacked or anything like that. So he'd be an interesting one. And then, and then the dream appointment for the DFB, and this is this has been mentioned for years and years and years now, is Jurgen Klopp. It's it's this dream of theirs that they hold. I think there's no chance that he'll take it at this point maybe with the exception of I can't remember who it was it maybe Andy Brassel I saw mentioning this in the podcast that it's been raised in the German press that maybe they could offer it to Klopp on a like a short-term basis um I remember Alex Ferguson took Scotland for the 1986 World Cup and he just did the World Cup yeah. and then he went back to club management potentially I mean I'd still be surprised if Klopp took that to be honest but there's maybe a sales pitch where the DFB would say to Klopp look come and be the Germany manager for a home Euros like that doesn't happen very often a tournament on on home soil and then you can kind of go back to Liverpool manager after that I I think that's a few years off but right now given the reporting from Beal that Nagelsmann has been freed by by Munich it it feels like it's going to be him which is going to be very very interesting I agree with that I think it's then really interesting or it's a very fascinating what if of what if Liverpool had let Mohamed Salah go. Because it does open that door a little bit more. Because you're right, like when you say, I don't think there's any chance of getting him. I don't think he leaves Liverpool. I agree with you. And yet, if Salah had left, it does feel like, okay, they're once again rebuilding. Yes, they've got a ton of money, but they've lost their key player. If he were to say, like, you know what? I'm not the one to continue to lead this project. I'm going to step away and takes over Germany. I think people are still sad, but I don't think there would be a like a betrayal. He's walking away. It's funny how keeping Salah, I think, would then make it like, oh, no, he's betraying this team. He's walking away from the project mm-hmm. that he was leading. Uh, so I think good work by Liverpool to keep him around uh, and ideally to keep Klopp around, because I think you're right. He does bring the profile and the pedigree that I think you need to be able to weather some of that criticism from the DFB, from the media, from whomever else. It feels like Klopp and Pep are the two that if Pep took over England, uh, as you mentioned previously, that was their desire, that like no one is really going to question him if friendlies don't go his way, at least not to start, or even if they do, it's still like, yeah, but you're the English media and he's Pep. He's going to do fine. And I think Klopp would have that same bulletproof nature, at least for a little while, with the caveat that I probably would have said that about Hansi Flick winning the treble, and here yeah, we are. So it's a, very, it's a very curious spot they're in. It feels like it's going to be Nagelsmann, and I think that is going to be itself a pretty fascinating uh, situation to monitor and how they develop or don't in the lead-up to the Euros. Mm. I think a big factor in Germany's struggles have has been the fact that they've only played friendlies, and mm. friendlies are a weird, weird thing in international soccer where... I mean, you look at the U.S. beating Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan objectively three 0 is like a good result, and and that is certainly not a bad result. But I know there's been debate about the performance, and some people really unhappy with the performance. I know two goals come in stoppage time, so it feels like with friendly matches, it's difficult to know what the parameters are. It's difficult to know what the purpose is, and so 
Germany as a host nation heading into the Euros. It's not an ideal place to be as a host nation, to not have competitive games. We saw Qatar try to combat that by being placed in a in a in a, in a Euro and in a UEFA group as a ghost mm-hmm. team to try and get some to, to try and imitate um, competitive action. And it is something that is going to be interesting with the US heading into the 2026 World Cup where Berhalter, there's still a lot of debate around Greg Berhalter and whether he should have been kept on. And I just wonder without that competitive action, is that going to be a difficult place for the US to be in? Are they going to replicate the same cycle that Germany have been in ahead of these Euros? I don't know. It's just something that came into my mind when I was looking into Germany. So I promise I was going to say this before you even brought up Berhalter, but it is now going to sound like I am defending the Berhalter reappointment. The the other like very, I think, concerning thing for German supporters when it comes to the German national team and why Hansi Flick was let go, it does sound like it has been a very difficult task of motivating the German players to get up for friendlies when it, you know, we're in the middle of a season or we haven't had a break and now we finally have a break and you want us to care about this friendly against Colombia or Poland or whomever. No disrespect to the opposition. It really is just why this like it all feels like you're just experimenting and trying different things. And I think it, it's a it's an even worse situation to some extent that Flick doesn't have just a we're playing a four two three one. I know eight of my eleven starters. It's like it's it's a problem that he keeps having to sort of experiment and change the shape because at the very least, if you knew eight of your eleven, you could see the friendlies as an opportunity to fine tune and continue to develop patterns of play and rotations and where are you supposed to take up space on the pitch and how are we supposed to play off of that? Like you can fine tune with friendlies if you have your sort of core group in place. And maybe that's the argument for why it could go well for Burhalter is like this allows him to fine tune in the lead up to 2026. That's a separate conversation. But I think that it's Germany playing friendlies is already going to be a hard thing to get players up for. And then playing friendlies where it doesn't feel like there's consistency from one game to the next, where there is a rhyme or reason from one game to the next, I think it becomes even more frustrating and just sort of even less of an event for players. And 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 that feels to have been the case with a lot of these German performances of late. So a change necessary, a change is not surprising. And yet it's still surprising how this played out. Because again, I thought Flick was going to be a slam dunk appointment. And here we are. Another situation that will just be very interesting to keep an eye on with with and if and when they do make an appointment, who that appointment is, and then how the team immediately responds or doesn't. Uh, Euro 2024 is going to be great, Graham, not just because Scotland's going to win the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Germany aren't good at their own Euros, something will feel off. <laughs> yes. Something, something has snapped in the footballing space-time continuum, and I will feel, especially if Scotland are there. Scotland are at a major tournament, and you and Germany on home soil are bad. Nope, football is, something's gone wrong. Yeah. Have you, at the risk of putting you on the spot here, have you followed much of like the way they've changed their coaching at youth level? Because that also seems to be a talking point. That Not I think really, no. I think they've gone away. As I understand it, there's a whole, the the age-old you know, winning doesn't matter anymore. Like they've gone away from, I think like score, keeping track of wins and losses at youth level. And it's much more about like developing team play, but that in of itself has led to a whole conversation about have they like evolved too far? Are they trying to do much? Even though I think a lot of what they do is pretty standard for like England and Spain at youth levels. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, there's there's even like the debate about like do we need another DOS reboot? Is DOS reboot DOS reboot 2.0 already failing? Like it's just a strange situation heading into the Euros that we do have Germany kind of panicking, even though they're the hosts, even though we expect them to to make a run. 
because there is precedent for them not making a run and not doing well and not having a strong team. So it's an odd world we live in, but yeah. uh, but I I'm here for it, Graham. I'm here for it. Yeah, it's, it's it, it will it would be kind of weird if if Germany have changed their like youth system to be more Spanish, like yeah. Pep Guardiola. <laughs> look what you've done. You have broken Germany. <laughs> Oh, Pep gets credit for everything, including breaking Germany. <laughs> uh, one more break, then we will be back with a few more talking points from the international window. Back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show, where the world is upside down, uh, cats and dogs are living together, Germany are struggling, and Grand Portugal are fun. <laughs> yeah, this might be the weirdest thing of all, particularly because Roberto Martinez is, is their manager, uh -huh. and uh, uh, this feels wrong to say. I feel like he might have been not the worst appointment, uh -oh. so... So I, I watched Portugal against Luxembourg. That's, that's the highest praise Graham can give you. <laughs> say that again, yeah. please. 
he might not have been the worst appointment. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so I, I watched Portugal against Luxembourg uh, last night because on paper it looked like it might be a, a, a good game. That might be a oh. surprise to anyone who, who isn't tracking the Euro qualifiers. But Luxembourg had 10 points from five games. They'd won three in a row. And I was... Um, I was considering writing about them for the newsletter this week, what's changed for Luxembourg, uh, and then Portugal put nine past them. Their biggest ever international win, and honestly, it could have been even more. And that is a that in itself is a big difference from what we have become accustomed to seeing from Portugal. So there was no Ronaldo in that game either. He was suspended for Portugal, picked up a, a, a booking in the game against Slovakia before that. So it really was like watching something new and fun from Portugal, which uh, is is weird. And as I say, it is really painful for me to admit, but Roberto Martinez, the big old uh, Angry Bird himself, my favourite angry, angry Bird, he might have been the right sort of manager for Portugal after Fernando Santos. I do still think Martinez is a very vibesy manager, but a vibesy manager, after the rigidity of mm-hmm. Santos, has given Portugal a freshness. And it kind of reminds me of when Solskjaer came in at Manchester City and replaced mm-hmm. Jose Mourinho, and just having someone who wasn't the human embodiment of misery as a manager <laughs> made a difference. Yeah. So in this analogy, um, Mourinho is Fernando Santos, Solskjaer is uh, Roberto Martinez, and yeah, I had a, I had a good time watching Portugal. I'm not I'm not convinced there's much kind of like tactical framework behind what they're doing, but just having talented players and of course Portugal's squad is very attack-minded that's where the strength is and having talented attacking players in their best positions and not having to play as like wing backs and track back and having one striker up front on their own having to hold up the ball like that was the case under Santos that in itself has has made a difference the question about the vibesy manager that is having vibesy success is what happens when the vibes change. And for people who aren't paying attention to Euro qualification group J, Portugal topping it, haven't conceded a goal, 24 goals for and not against, but it's a group of Slovakia, Luxembourg, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. Bosnia and Iceland, you would usually think of as being more difficult teams, but both of them, as I said, near the bottom of the table, only having six points each. So... We haven't really seen Portugal come up against sterner opposition, uh, at least through the qualifying uh, phase. So the question then becomes, as it was for Manchester United and Solskjaer, what happens when the vibes take a hit after you play a team that is better and causes you problems? And that remains, I think, the lingering question for me with Martinez in charge of Portugal is yeah. when things go south, because they will, because that's how it works, does he have the ability to keep those vibes, to turn those vibes around, to keep everybody kind of pulling in the same direction, loose as it may be? Yeah, absolutely. That was always the criticism of Martinez as Belgium manager. I can probably count on one hand the number of like big wins Belgium had against comparable opponents. The one that sticks in my mind is they did beat Brazil in, in the 2018 World Cup, where it really felt like that was a watershed moment for them. And then they didn't really progress beyond that point. And I guess... We've we've spoken about Southgate with England, and now we're speaking about Martinez with Portugal. That in itself is like a, a philosophical question in international management. Do you have a Martinez who, if you bring in for one cycle and you have a talented squad, there is maybe a chance that the vibes take you to a major tournament win? 
Whereas with Southgate, not so vibesy as a manager, but very solid and stable and conservative, maybe you don't have that. Um, you, maybe you don't have as good an opportunity if you're taking a single tournament. But over a longer period of time of maybe three or four tournaments, you have a greater degree of consistency. That that kind of feels like the two extremes of the spectrum in international management. Agreed. Uh, and I think the extremes of international management is a good way to talk about Roberto Martinez uh, for a second, if we want to stick there. Because I do. Uh, because in a circuitous way, I will compare this to Kevin Smith, uh, the filmmaker, who uh, gets a lot of praise for the movies he's made, maybe less so recently. But then also one like consistent criticism of him, I promise this will connect, is that he didn't do like any camera moves, that it was all very stationary shots, uh, that he... He basically would like go very rudimentary, very basic. And in Dogma, he puts in the movie Dogma, he puts in a camera move where like the camera goes through a window. And I, th- I think I've heard him talk about like how he only did that because people said he couldn't. And it was like to prove a point. And then he kind of didn't have any more after that. And the Martinez win uh, for Belgium versus uh, Brazil in the 2018 World Cup looms large in my head as a game in which I remember being like, wow, he made pra- like pragmatic but also proactive changes. Yeah. And that's so- the game that's the game he plays Lukaku as a as a right winger yeah. to try and get in behind. And it really, really worked. And it then worked he moves so well. I remember him moving Carrasco twice in that game. Carrasco who maybe doesn't even start that one, but at the very least he keeps moving him around to exploit areas of vulnerability that Brazil keep uh presenting. And, and, and all I have to say that it feels to me like the kind of window move from Dogma where he's like, see, I can do it. I can make tactical adjustments. I did it that one time in 2018 and it worked really well. And I don't need to do it anymore because I've already done it the one time. And that, that is the sort of frustrating <laughs> thing with him is like there are the moments that it's happened, but then there are the moments when it has imploded and he's just sort of looked befuddled as to why his team wasn't scoring more goals. So I'm yeah. hoping that it's a more engaging electric Portugal because I think that would be very fun and they have so much talent that if they are on their day they are one of the best teams in the world to watch but when they're not that's when I think it will be an even more fascinating story the the other reason it might work for for Portugal in this Euros cycle is one of the big criticisms of criticisms of Martinez's Belgian manager was he wasn't able to evolve that team in terms of the personnel Eden Hazard was starting games for Belgium like eight months ago he doesn't have a club now he's not a professional footballer anymore and he was starting at a world cup eight months ago whereas with portugal talent isn't wasn't the issue for them under fernando santos they have the talent they have a world-class international team right now and so martinez has walked into that dressing room and gone wow like everything is here like i don't need to do anything i don't need to evolve anything i do question like three or four years down the line when he will need to evolve things how that's going to pan out I think that's a fair thing uh, to wonder about, Graham. Uh, A few more uh, talking points in the international game. Uh, Graham, tell us about the Republic of Ireland. I mentioned them briefly. Let's talk about them in a little more depth this time around. Yeah, so I find the Republic of Ireland really interesting at the moment. So so they had a group of players that for about 10 years gave them a chance of reaching every tournament. So players like Robbie Keane and Robbie Brady and Shane Long and Aidan McGeady and all those guys. And I wouldn't say those players were like particularly sexy in how they played the game, but they were reliable, they were consistent, and, and Ireland benefited off that for a long time. Then one of two things happened. Either they chose not to introduce any young talent, or the young talent just wasn't there. But in the last few years, it's like they're having to completely build their team from scratch. I like to think that I've got a decent knowledge of, 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 of football, particularly European football. I look through the Ireland squad at the moment and there's like a good portion of players that I have just never heard of. 
and that is because they're they're having to they're having to build their team from scratch. They have a very young team at the moment, and there are some good players in there. Obviously, Evan Ferguson is is, is the pick of the bunch. He's he's injured at the moment, so he wasn't available for this for this window. Um, they had games against France and the Netherlands, so that was a difficult doubleheader for for Ireland. But they've got Gavin Bazunu, who is a good goalkeeper. Ogbeni looks decent as well. The issue with Ireland is. I, I'm not seeing a lot of while the while a lot of the, a good number of their players are are decent and may flourish into good international level players. I'm not seeing a, a lot of top level quality at the mm-hmm. moment. It is essentially a championship squad, and I keep hearing. I follow a lot of uh, Irish Irish football fans on Twitter. I I, I know a, a couple of uh, Irish football fans personally, and they they are kind of bought into this notion that they are moving forward that things are getting better and i keep watching ireland and i'm not i'm just not seeing it so it does feel like they are at a crossroads with uh, stephen kenny as as their manager they have they're losing a lot of games at the moment they're essentially out of europe euro qualifying already they cannot stop conceding goals from long range shots they've conceded 11 of their last um excuse me they've they, in, of their last 27 shots from outside the box 11 have resulted in goals which is an incredible ratio they they're just quite easy to defend against um scotland played against them last year i thought they were pretty agricultural in their report in their approach they kicked lumps out of us i wasn't very impressed by them at all and it feels like stephen kenny is kind of reaching the end of his time as manager i've seen roy Keane linked with that job i really want that to happen but not because i think he'd be a good <laughs> ireland manager like i'm just envisaging him screaming at a team of 22 year olds it would be like an episode of ramsey's kitchen nightmares just every international window and um, but i've also seen lee carsley who is the england under 21 manager that feels like a more feasible realistic option to be honest um so yeah i suspect by the time the next qualification campaign comes around ireland might have a different manager it would Keane in charge would be like half Roy Kent, the Roy Kent from Ted Lasso, who like doesn't uh, sort of sheathe his, his opinions and is like, yeah, that guy was crap today, except it would be about the whole team. And then it would be half Gordon Ramsay of the screaming as well. I don't think that would go particularly well. <laughs> Things not going well for Ireland. As you said, they're not fully out of qualification yet, but they are fourth in, in their table. They've only won the one game versus Gibraltar. And even if they win two of their remaining three, so they would have to beat Greece at home, then beat Gibraltar on the road, which is feasible. That puts them level on points with where the Dutch are right now and where Greece is right now. And then they would need to win against the Dutch away on their final day. It feels like they're pretty much done with qualifying. So we'll see uh, how they sort of rebuild after qualifying is over or maybe even during qualifying what they can change up. But I'm with you that it's not a strong time for Ireland. And I always go back to... Every single time I see one of my Irish buddies and I ask him how it's going or we talk about Ireland, he's very sort of down, but I'm going to keep watching. And I'll and I'll do that sort of like, yeah, but you guys like have some talent. And I remember this was like years and years ago at this point. But I remember being like Aaron Connolly, like he scored the goals. Like he scored a couple goals recently. And he was like, you're talking about that one game. And that was two years ago. And I think this was five years ago when that happened. So they yeah. haven't really kicked on uh, necessarily. I'm- I mean, they start. They started James McLean at left wing yeah, back against Wrexham Zone. Je- yeah, I was going to say plays for Wrexham in 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 League Two. So it's a very it's a very uneven squad. Where yes, there's a there's a couple of talented youngsters, but they've still got guys like James McLean. Shane Duffy is still in that starting lineup. Nathan Collins, he's he's got promise, and I think that is the hope for for Ireland is if they can find a good spine 
that often can be enough in international soccer to to earn you results. And that spine could be Bazunu, who I think is a good goalkeeper. Nathan Collins is a central defender. They're probably lacking a central midfielder at the moment, but then they've got Evan Ferguson as a central striker. So there there is some hope there, but it feels like things are there's a lot of moving pieces and things are still things have still to settle at the moment. There are there is some hope there, but things still have to settle at the moment is also a pretty good encapsulation of Italy right now. Uh, <laughs> third in the group with England, Ukraine ahead of them, but Italy thus far have only played three games in qualifying. They've uh, gotten four points from those games, the draw with North, Ma- North Macedonia. Uh, and then uh, I think they, I'm forgetting who they beat. They beat uh, Malta in qualifying, lost to England. So not the brightest of starts to qualifying for England, mm. Graham. Or for Italy. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like Italy drop points in North Macedonia in every single international window <laughs> at the moment. I'm not sure how many times they have they have played each other recently, but it feels like a lot, and it feels like Italy never win against North even, Macedonia. Even when they don't play in a window, they still somehow lose to North Macedonia. <laughs> yeah. It's very confusing. Yeah, somehow Goran Pandev still scores against them. <laughs> um, yeah, they must be completely sick of North Macedonia at the moment. Obviously, Luciano Spalletti is the new Italy manager, which I feel like that story has flown under the radar uh, a little bit. That, I didn't that, know that it happened until you put it in the document today. Okay, there we go. So there, there's the proof. So Roberto Mancini, he, he left to become Saudi Arabia manager. This this was fairly recent. This is only like maybe three weeks ago. Um, Spalletti comes in as the new Italy manager, of course, left Napoli at the end of last season. And, and that is an exciting appointment, given what he did with Napoli. But he's only been in charge for a few weeks. This is his first camp uh, with these players. And, and so we shouldn't be too surprised that Italy didn't play like Napoli against North Macedonia. But then um, Spalletti did say before the match that Italy would play with, quote, creativity, flair, and organization. And to my eye, and I watched this game live, there was none of that in this performance. So it, <laughs> it, wasn't a particularly, uh, it wasn't a particularly great start. And there's a similar debate in Italian football right now to the one we were talking about with, uh, with Germany about a lack of talent being produced for the elite level. Apparently Spalletti's going to make loads of changes for the match against Ukraine. So they're playing Ukraine tonight um, on Tuesday as we're recording. So maybe the situation has changed a little bit by the time you listen to this. But apparently it's going to bring in David, uh, David Fratesi, uh, Nicolo Zaniolo, Raspadori and Cristiano Baraggi are all coming into that team. So it very much feels like he has no idea what his full strength starting lineup is at the moment, which is understandable. He's he's barely been in that in that job um and he's still kind of figuring things out. I'm I'm sort of amazed that Destiny Adoji wasn't called up mm. for this window um because he feels like a solution. Italy having problems at fullback. Um, he could play on the left side pretty easily, give them a different dimension. I also think uh, Calabria continues. It's weird that he continues to be overlooked. Obviously, not a particularly eye-catching fullback, but someone who does a good job for AC Milan is proven at the top level in the Champions League and obviously in Serie A. So he hasn't been part of the squad yet. I do wonder if if, if that will change. So I I don't think we can judge Italy under Spalletti just yet. But this is a this is a challenging job, maybe more challenging than one would envisage from being Italy manager. Obviously, we expect them to qualify for tournaments, but they've now gone two World Cups without qualifying, and the, the obviously they won the last Euros, which is kind of bizarre. But if you take a big broad picture, look at how things have been going for them. They have been disappointing for a while. I do like, though, when we have someone like Spalletti in charge of a big nation, because it feels like that is a 
spot where he should thrive, and I'm hoping he does. I feel the same about Bielsa uh, taking over Uruguay. Off to a 100% start in qualifying, albeit that's one game we're talking about. But a 3-1 to win uh, over Chile uh, for Uruguay. Uh, that, that's probably as good as it could have gone, I feel like, to, to kick things yeah. off for Bielsa. Yeah, I, I watched some of, of, of this win over, over Chile last week. Um, Uruguay are also playing Ecuador this evening. So similar to Italy, the situation might have changed by the time listeners listen. Is that home or away, do you know? That is away, I believe, Ooh, to Ecuador. That's a tough one. Yeah, they, that is a tough that one. That is a tough one. Ecuador, Ecuador are starting on like minus three points, right? Because yes. they had the ineligible player for the World Cup and that was their punishment. Um, but nonetheless, Ecuador are pretty decent at the moment. So that is a challenging uh, fixture. It's also, I, uh, they play, it's one of the two that is played at crazy elevation. So yeah. when teams go there, it's always like, if you don't score goals in the first half, you are going to be in trouble in the second. And especially yeah, for a team go- that are all about like, Bielsa likes to press <laughs> <Yeah>. and run. <laughs> I'm not sure that works at altitude. Yeah, you thought Bielsa Ball was challenging in Leeds, now try it at the top of a mountain. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see, how, uh, we'll see how that goes. I thought they were impressive against Chile. The, They're just going to the be Darth first... Vader, like oxygen masks as yeah, they play the game. Like not oxygen even, tanks. Not even like on the sideline, but fully just running sprints with oxygen masks attached. <laughs> I'm excited for that game. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. They were impressive <laughs> against Chile, um, and I thought the first goal demonstrated everything that Bielsa wants from this team where they were very dogged out of possession, they scrapped to win the ball back in the middle of the pitch, and then with a couple of touches around the corner, slick one-touch football, they moved from a possession phase into a transition pretty quickly, and then it's bounced off Darwin Nunes in the box, and De La Cruz finishes. It was an excellent goal. I saw it bouncing around um, social media, and as I say, it kind of demonstrates everything that Bielsa wants a team to be. And I, I just think Bielsa is a very good fit for Uruguay. I, I know he is a, a, an, Ar- an Argentinian, but he has coached a number of teams in South America. He's been Chile manager before. In terms of the players that Uruguay have, they've got players like Ferry Valverde and Manuel Uguarte, who's at um, PSG now. Darwin Nunes, of course. And, and these all just seem like Bielsa players who will offer plenty off the ball and are fit enough to play his way. But then also in terms of the character of Uruguay as a football nation where, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn because I, I, I mean this as a compliment, they do revel in the dark arts a little bit yeah. and they have that scrappy quality that I love when it's combined with technical ability. Argentina have something similar, but it feels like Uruguay is just another level in, in that regard. So I am already looking forward to watching, a, obviously they have to qualify first, but looking further ahead, I am looking forward to watching a Bielsa Uruguay team at the World Cup. And final one for today, Graham, when we're talking about matches made in heaven, it's a perfect blend. I'm assuming that applies to your Klinsmann at South Korea. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wrote about this for the from a newsletter last which, week. It's which just was great. A, a, and if people don't know about that, they should subscribe. Uh, Graham, can you talk about your newsletter for a second, actually? Because I feel like we haven't promoted that enough, and I really enjoyed your article on Klinsmann. Yes, yeah, so I, I run a, a a newsletter called The Soccer Dispatch. You can find that at thesoccerdispatch.substack.com. I'd, every week I do, the idea is one interesting story about soccer every Thursday. Um, it might be something mainstream, but the idea is generally to for it to be a, a, something that you might not have known about. So last week was about Jurgen Klinsmann and the situation with 
South Korea, which is very interesting and from an American perspective, quite funny as well. So South Korea are playing a friendly against Saudi Arabia this evening on, on, on Tuesday night. Um, that match is taking place at St. James's Park, which is Saudi Arabia's new home stadium. I'm led to believe um, the, the story around South Korea is that essentially Klinsman, he's only been in charge since February. And South Korea's record in that time is dreadful. There's no tactical framework. He's apparently fallen out with his coaching staff. Um, he is essentially working from home as the South Korea manager. So Oof. he is, he's been in South Korea for 60 days or something like that in total. He is essentially coaching this team from his home in Los Angeles. South Koreans are very, very unhappy about this, which, you know, I think is uh, reasonable. Normally you expect a national team manager to actually visit the country that they are coaching. Apparently there's more to the story um, as well that's come out since I, I wrote the newsletter last week, but apparently he booked South Korea's training base for this window in London when they had games in Wales and Newcastle. The reason the, ba- the base was in London was apparently Klinsman pushed for this because he was playing in a Legends game over the weekend at Stamford Bridge, but didn't tell the Korean FA that this was the reason. So they stayed in London so Klinsman could play in a Legends game when the national team had games not in London. Um, he has got rid of press conferences, right. so it's customary for an international yeah. manager to... Have a pre- you having PTSD here, Taylor? It feels like bit, that's dude. what's happening. A right little now. bit. I do not miss this guy. <laughs> yeah. So he's got rid of press conferences. So we've all seen this. A uh, national team roster is announced. The manager then fronts up to the media, faces questions. He's got rid of all that. Um, but he is giving interviews on Harry Kane, TSPN, and he was at the Old Firm Derby two weeks ago. So yeah, it sounds like it's going well for the USMNT's favorite former manager in South Korea. Graham, but not actually in South Korea. Graham, there was a, a manager for the Richmond Kickers many years ago who was not, I want to say this up front, not Lee Kalashaw, who I love and was the manager for a very long time. But before Lee was the manager, uh, there was a coach who I remember when I was the water boy for the Kickers overhearing a player say, man, he's the only coach I've ever had who schedules practice where based on where he's sleeping the night before, uh, <laughs> which tells you maybe about that coach's proclivities off the pitch. Uh, but yeah, Jurgen Klinsmann has been doing the same thing where it's just like whatever random thing he's booked, that's where training is going to be this week yeah it doesn't seem like maybe that's the way to get the buy-in to get the the team sort of functioning at the level that they would probably hope Mm. for and that other managers have been able to get them to i doubt they're they start qualifying uh with i think in their group is china and thailand both are the top two teams advanced so they'll be fine but it is that same old Lack of tactical DNA, lack of identity, lack of a blueprint for how to succeed. Uh, I saw you mentioned that he was at the Old Firm Derby. I'm assuming to see Hun Young uh, Jang, who starts on the bench, does get some minutes, so at least he saw a Korean player play. Uh, but it doesn't feel like there is that sort of buy-in from Klinsman at present and is sort of resting on, trust me, when yeah. the time comes, you'll see. So there was a reason, as you mentioned, for him to be at that game. But the thing that really grates is he did like a sit down interview with Sky Sports, not about South Korean football, talking about like Brendan Rodgers and Tottenham and Harry Kane and everything. And when he is not fronting up to the South Korean media and his job as national team manager, I think that isn't a good look. I look forward to the next international window, South Korea's training base being wherever is closest to the DFB headquarters because Klinsman is angling for that job. I'm looking forward to the reaction to that. Yeah, it's like an actor doing the media tour to promote a movie, but they don't really want to talk about that movie. So they just keep talking about all the other stuff that they've done previously. Mm. And it's like, shouldn't you be talking about the thing that you're doing right now and kind of focused <laughs> on that? No? Okay. Yeah, no, I don't miss Clinton. So uh, we'll see what happens with Korea. We'll see what happens with every team that we've discussed as qualifying continues, as we get more World Cup qualifying as well. 
But for now, Graham Ruffin, thank you so much for being here today uh, on a very momentous day for Scotland to talk about the international window with me, my friend. Hopefully a momentous day. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. (laughs) Sorry for that. Listeners, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.